Hey everyone, it's Abadesi, your host of Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. In this episode, I speak to John Henry of Harlem Capital about how to invest in overlooked ideas. His fund has raised more than $40 million to invest in talented founders with a focus on the underrepresented. While still in his 20s, he's achieved a number of accolades from selling a company he started in his teens to boasting a global media career as a presenter and influencer. In addition to all this, he also invests in real estate. Here he shares advice on building a multi-dimensional career and investing in underserved markets. John, thanks so much for being on Product Hunt Radio today. For those who aren't super familiar with who you are and what you do, bring us up to speed. Yeah, my name is John Henry, and I am, I guess, primarily the son of immigrants, proud son of immigrants who just grew up um, in uptown Manhattan and you know did what they could to get by, didn't have careers, more so worked kind of odd, dead-end jobs. And yeah, these days I... I build companies that I'm passionate about. Um, I guess to take a step back also, I didn't get into entrepreneurship because I read about it on an article and read about venture capital and like all of the buzz that's around it today. I got started because I just wanted to help my family out. And I felt like my job at that time wasn't enough to help out as quickly as I wanted to help my family. So you know, and I, I offer that context because I think the world of business and entrepreneurship can seem pretty scary these days. There's so much, there's so much at stake. You got to get it right. You got to raise money. You got to go public. And like, man, I got to be honest, if I were starting now versus a decade ago when I started, I might feel like the weight of the, the expectation maybe would have crushed the the seed of enthusiasm that I had to start. Um, at least it, it can feel that way. And so anyway, yeah, when I reflect on my own experiences and also tell folks about entrepreneurship, I, I try to kind of keep it to its most basic elements, which is really just, you know, doing something creative, doing something that you find fun and seeing if you can sell it to folks and not in some like overly transactional way, but just like, hey, you know, I'm putting this together, you know, and I'm selling it for such and such, you know, like, would you like to buy it from me? And just like, you know, and it's so simple. Um, and I think, you know, it can be made to seem very daunting. So anyway, yeah. So these days, you know, I've started a, a number of things. Um, I've started uh, what at that time, my first business was an on-demand kind of laundry service, which is really just easy for, I used to go to people's homes and pick up their laundry. And I'm more or less had a laundry delivery service. I did an incubator, most recently started a venture fund, but have never stopped doing other things as well. Um, investing in real estate being one of them and also pretty active in media and so forth. Amazing. Yeah. You have filled a lot of your life so far with so many adventures and so many projects, which is incredible. It just makes me think what else you're going to do. I mean, do you sleep? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I've found myself uh, the the turn of the year and also decade was an interesting reflection uh, for me because I realized that I place so much and I feel like a lot of us maybe um, we place so much emphasis on what we're going to do in the next year 
But then when I zoomed out and I was getting in my head about, did I do what I wanted to do in a year? And, you know, certainly there's something to be said about being goal oriented, but it's funny because when I zoomed out and looked at how I trended for the decade, you know, all of a sudden, like in a way, just by framing it that way, you know, you feel some sense of relief for, you know, you just realize like, hey, just chip at it slowly. And over time, over a long period of time, you know, you get to where you're building towards. Um, and so that lens has been particularly refreshing for me. And also, that's what I think about when I think of like my own journey, because I did get started uh, when I was 18. And yeah, I think it's uh, pretty cool how the building blocks um, add up. And then sometimes the foundation is not sturdy enough. Like that's happened to me, like I've built really fast and then, you know, slipped and taken several steps back. And, you know, I've had to do the same thing number of times. And now, now I just feel good about what I've learned. Like I know that my experience and my knowledge can't be taken. So if I had to restart, I could. Amazing. I wanted to kind of go back to something that you mentioned at the the start of this interview about how you started your entrepreneurship journey because you were working and you realized to help your family at the level you wanted to, it wasn't going to be enough to just work a job. You needed to own a company and create wealth in that way. I just wonder like, how would you describe either like the revelation that kind of like led you to realize like, wait a minute, I can put my time into a job or I can put my time into building a company. And how did you handle dealing with the risk that comes with that? Because I think a lot of folks have probably maybe stumbled upon that realization, but there's so much more risk that comes with building a company versus just signing a contract and starting a job. So I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, um, I think it's a great question. I mean, huh, let me put myself in those shoes for for a lot for myself and maybe a lot of folks listening, and certainly a lot of Americans across the country. You know, folks do work uh, paycheck to paycheck, and it's fun. You know, I we grew up particularly broke, so I thought even middle class was affluent. But now, as I've risen in socioeconomic means, I see that you know even middle class like it's all relative. Like, sure, maybe folks down the street from me had a house. And I used to think that was a benchmarker for wealth. But then when you come around folks like that, you see that they're, you know, trying to meet their mortgage too, and their car insurance and so forth. And so I guess across the spectrum, when you look at it that way, what is the risk really in giving it, giving it a shot at trying something different? I think the risk is true in the short term. Like, yes, certainly short term, you can get a job that takes up your full time for a decade, let's say when you're in your 20s. But I don't know, as I don't know what folks make of the news that they see, but, um, you know, there are a lot of rounds of layoffs that happen at any time. You know, there's a lot of macroeconomic changes. Um, not only are the older corporations like Macy's and so forth cutting jobs, but you also see it in new companies, Vice, Refiner29, BuzzFeed, uh, WeWork, Uber. I mean, at any given moment, there's jobs, you know, ebbing and flowing, professions are changing. And so for me, when I look at it that way, that to me felt riskier because your own income was not in your own hands. Um, and so 
when I do the risk analysis um, that you had asked me about, for me, it's okay, do I spend, you know, five to seven years? Well, I think more realistically, I think it takes like two solid years of trying something really hard to build a decent skill set that you can then generate income off of. And then it takes a number of years after that to really be able to build, um, you know, clientele, people coming to you to buy what you're selling and so forth. But then once you once you kind of have it built, um, it's not that it can't go away because anything can go away. But to me, I felt more in control. I felt better equipped to handle big changes if I had my own way to make income rather than just like being at the mercy of the job market. So I don't know. And also, by the way, you know, there's also like a lot of stigma against jobs, but I don't even think that's accurate either because, you know, sure, I I wasn't working like a career job. I was just working as a doorman. But when I look at, you know, the modern workforce and I have a lot of friends participating in the modern economy, so to speak, man, I know dozens, dozens, if not hundreds, and certainly through social thousands of people that I'm connected to that, you know, earn income, you know, being designers or podcast, you know, podcast producers, content strategists, gaming, like there's so many new types of careers that you can have. And the good thing about these new jobs is they're pretty well paying. Um, if you can resist the temptation to, to spend your cash on lifestyle, uh, which is not to condone lifestyle, but for at least in my own experience, I didn't find it fulfilling to go to all the brunches and events and like keep up with the FOMO type of thing. And I was realizing, and maybe some folks listening might realize like, you're kind of just wasting your cash, you know? So I don't know you can, all, all that to say a job is a wonderful means to get ahead to the next stage. And that next stage could be, you know, rising levels of influence at your job, or it could be, using that job, stashing some cash and giving yourself a little cushion to try something that you've always been passionate about if it's not your job. Yes, that's amazing. I wasn't going to bring this up, but I feel like you did. And so it's like a wonderful segue. Um, I just returned from your hometown of New York. And um, kind of like you said, there's a lot of temptation, especially in the big cities to spend your money on things which are quite ephemeral. You know, they're not going to last like a lovely brunch, a great matcha latte, whatever the case might be. And I started reflecting on the macro trend of millennials investing in experiences. And I started to think what part of that narrative is driven truly by our desires and what part of that narrative comes from those who benefit from it. You know what I mean? Because if I keep hearing that, oh, I invest in my experiences unlike previous generations because that's what matters to me, then I feel more inclined to spend more and more of my (laughs) limited budget on experiences when I could be, as you say, saving them. So putting off you know, the gratification for something more concrete, like an asset, like a house, like an investment, et cetera. That's a very philosophical (laughs) question, right? Like how much the beholder, I do think it's true that like, we're generally as millennials, as a segment of the population, like generally less price sensitive because we have found ourselves like our base case when we came out of school was, you know, having a job. Whereas in 2008, so the generation that's older than us, like they were in the midst of like a macroeconomic recession. And so, you know, 
when you adjust for the economy, like we came out of school, you know, went to our backs, like there's plenty of new jobs, they pay really well. Um, we're less price sensitive as a result, you know, we're all about the experiences. And I think, you know, it's probably 50, 50, like I do feel that way as well. Um, and I also feel that I'm sure marketers like lean in on it because you're seeing a bunch of older brands, like adopt that messaging, but you know, it's interesting because to me it raises the philosophical point of like, okay, you know, I find it interesting that, you know, corporate entities, if you hire a savvy millennial, you know, to lead your marketing strategy, then all of a sudden your corporate voice is that of millennials. And so, and anyway, I feel, I do feel like there's a bunch of influences at play all the time. And I feel like the, the strongest combatant, maybe combat's not the right word, but for me, the greatest sense of independence that I feel is when I'm building a robust economic engine for, okay, so here's what I would say. I would say that there are a lot of forces at play to your question about, you know, millennials, how much is self-induced, how much is it marketing, you know, marketing works. And I guess, you know, as I reflect on it, like I've been, you know, so I, I host a TV show and, you know, it's international, it's streamed in eight countries and, you know, I'm a brand ambassador for a big automobile company. And I guess overall this time, like I have been fortunate to sit in boardrooms where people are devising, you know, campaigns that they know based on data will influence hundreds of thousands, ideally millions of people. So like, I guess I'm just like more and more sensitive to the fact that like marketing is devised and it doesn't necessarily like it's tied to, you know, financial incentive for these entities because they're publicly traded companies and, you know, their value goes up every, every day as the stock climbs or falls. And so, I don't know, I feel like I've gotten to take a peek behind the curtains and I'm realizing, you know, for me, I feel like the best thing I can do is build something for myself and for my family that I know can't be taken away. Yes. And do you feel that finding that balance between participating in consumerism as a consumer, but also building wealth or, you know, generational wealth, like we like to call it often, you know, things that will remain even after we go. Was striking that balance something that came naturally to you? Or did you find that you were taking the time to improve your financial literacy and taking time to speak to folks who were investing in property because you wanted to get in property? Because I think that we don't really talk enough about that and we don't necessarily learn about it at school. And so, you know, when I do speak to people who are building portfolios, investing in property, building funds, investing in their companies, I just like to know about how they got more knowledgeable about that because I think it's so valuable to everyone. Yeah, it's a good point. And I think my journey into this was certainly not like came easy to me kind of thing. You know, I left school very my first semester, I left college and you know, I don't come from an affluent family. And so didn't have, you know, resources or people close to you that you could just ask. But I think what I what that does afford you when you come from a very different life experience is maybe you don't take a lot of those things for, for granted. And, you know, not every person that comes from my background is prompted to be interested in this. But, 
you know, people have different influences and passions and so forth. So for me, it was just like the right seed and then exposed in the, you know, an environment that is New York where you have, you know, the, the scale in New York from, of people and diversity of income, background, ethnicity. I mean, it's all right there in your face. So if you're curious and you ask questions, you start thinking about things like, man, like for me, it was all very personal, you know, having grown up in the hood and Wash Heights. And, you know, I spent a little bit of time around some affluent kids when I was in high school. And then you start asking like, man, how come we don't have it as easy? Cause I just, I didn't see their parents were as stressed. I'm sure they have their own stresses and stuff. But at that point in time, I was just realizing that our, you know, we grew up below the poverty line and it's just like very dire situation all the time. And we were happy, but um, yeah, man, it just makes you ask questions like, man, how, well, and then you realize like, well, okay, the first thing I discovered was like, okay, you know, net worth is primarily tied to your primary residence. And then you discover there was a point in time in which, you know, there was actual policy that prevented folks of color from partaking in something called the FHA program, which allows you to put 3% down to buy a home. So it quite uh, dramatically lowers the barrier to entry to buy a home because you could buy a hundred thousand home for 3000. Right. And then, so anyways, you start being, a, you know, you just ask more and more questions and you realize like, man, so much of what you experience on the daily is actually systemic. And it's actually, you know, like the flow of capital goes, but to certain hands whom I do not believe are acting out of ill intention, but people just do what they know. And so if they come up with folks they know and, you know, and so on and so forth, like wealth and all kinds of things end up being propagated to what it's familiar with. And so anyway, taking that cycle all the way around, you know, I just realized like, okay, let me start taking a crack at this. You know, let me start getting busy. Um, and for me, I was already in business and I realized that at that time, like being in business felt more powerful to me than ever before. Um, and I started trying to employ my family when I could and realizing that those dollars that you circulate, you know, you keep, keep those dollars in circulation. You don't hoard it. I think people think that saving up cash is like, you know, hoarding it, you circulate it, you know, and, and as you circulate more and more, the, 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 what you command grows. And so you're able to circulate more and more, accumulate more and more. Um, and now that's just grown for me over the years. Like now I'm, I'm really focusing on buying assets because I've really gotten interested in, in ownership. And for, for instance, when you own a lot in an area, you pay a lot of taxes and then all of a sudden you care about what's going on in your local government. And like all this stuff that I thought was like, you know, white folks like being, you know, white folks, like, wow, they're always, you know, petitioning, you know, like yoga, you know, just like cheesy stuff. It's just funny because there are a lot of things that when you don't own as a community, you're, you don't care about because you're underexposed to it. Right. I love that. Yeah. Um, I appreciate that insight. I think that makes a ton of sense. One of the things I wanted to ask you, so, you know, in addition to your accomplishments as an entrepreneur and, 
you know, now um, as someone managing a fund, a $40 million fund with Harlem Capital, um, which I definitely want to dive into more in a bit. I, I've also noticed that you are incredible at capitalizing on opportunities to amplify your your brand. And, you know, you mentioned your TV show, some of the commercial partnerships. Many folks will know you probably because they've just seen you on social media and they've loved the content that you've created and they've loved the stories that you've shared and the angles that you've taken on certain stories. What advice can you give individuals out there about, you know, commercializing and capitalizing on opportunities that are presented to them, opportunities which aren't always directly related to the company they're running, but which will, of course, amplify the work they're doing at the company they're running. How do you make decisions about you know, what you say yes to and how do you make the most of them? That's a great question. And this is something that I feel is very unique to our generation. The ability to make more income than your job or whatever brings on a regular basis. So yeah, I, I think it's it can be pretty powerful, especially if you view like we all have different skills and your skill can be monetized if honed. So, you know, A it's got to be honed enough to the point where you can start commanding income for it. Um, which means that, by the way, like you're going to have to go a period of time without making any money while you hone it, working for free, practicing your craft. For instance, if I were a graphic designer, like when you start, like you're going to suck, right? So you got to practice, practice, do things for free, work for local orgs. And then eventually you do get to the point where, and you'll feel it because you'll have more demand of more and more folks wanting your work. And then you can start charging for it. And then over time, you can grow that rate. You can start participating and, you know, you can be interviewed on podcasts like this and so forth. And you, you can share your thoughts about the, the skill. So to make it more um, concrete for folks, like people think that an additional income is like one dimensional, like, oh, I do for income. But in truth, you can make it multidimensional by speaking on it, sharing your thoughts about it. And then all of a sudden, to take this example of a designer, you're being paid to participate in panels by corporates that want to invite specific designers with a particular point of view, and that happens to be you. You now there are marketing campaigns that you know want to feature up and comers, and you know you've been chosen for the campaign, and so now in addition to the eyeballs that you get from being on the ad, you also get paid for it. You can. You can write a book if you'd like, sharing your design principles, you know, and so I think today's economy allows you to be very multidimensional with your earning. And that's something that I have put to practice over the past decade more, more than anything, because remember, I'm still hustling, right? Like I don't have a job, so to speak, right? Like, and, and for as you grow and you invest in more things, you need more and more cash to be able to do so. And if you're out there hustling, you got to devise ways that you can bring new value and charge for it. And that's kind of what growing a business is all about. And so for, for example, in my case, speaking is a very big form of income for me. It's high margin, uh, hits quickly, uh, but also you get to go and meet with different people all across the country that you otherwise wouldn't have gone to. Um, and then you capture that on social, you share it on social, and then it just kind of feeds that beast because then you can get paid to do collaborations on social. 
And, you know, for me, it's been interesting because I've discovered this entire new way of earning that back when I was a doorman 10 years ago, like my my best understanding of how to earn income at that time was clocking in, clocking in hours on the clock and clocking out. And for me, going back to that first question of yours, man, now that I put myself in that seat, like the thing that I was most interested in and impassioned about was how creative can I be about making my own way? Like, yeah, if I clock in and out, like someone has a prescribed value that they think my time is worth and that's what they're going to pay me. And fine, you can, you know, you can, you know, exist by that within those confines. But for me, like an entrepreneur, someone who's very curious about what happens outside of those confines, I ask myself, is it really true that I can't find a way to make 500 bucks in the week to replace my income? Surely I can come up with something. And it just so happens that, you know, 10 years ago, it was delivering laundry. But if you look at the economy of today, there's a lot of different ways that I would do it now. For instance, Alexa devices are super popular. I would become an Alexa beast and figure out how to do really cool things with them and then get people to, you know, to pay me to do that. Or, you know, you have to meet the, the moment and... Yeah, you got to meet the moment. So for anyone, I, I guess to wrap this point up, for anyone who's listening, whom is curious for one reason or another, what they can do to earn income, look around at the moment. Um, there are a lot of changes that are specific to literally right now, 2020, and typically are slow to catch on. But um, if you're curious and you dabble and you, you know, you do it out of fun and out of love and you do it for free for a little bit of time, eventually you hone a skill set that you can be paid for. And then you make that skill set multidimensional and you get to a point where no one job could ever replace what you've built um, cumulatively over the years for yourself. The question for any business owner out there is, are you confident that you've got the right numbers at your fingertips? Serious entrepreneurs and finance teams run on NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. NetSuite offers a full picture of all your finances all in one place, in real time, right from your phone or your desktop. No more guessing, no more worry that what you don't know could kill your company. That's why NetSuite customers grow three times faster than the S&P 500, and you can too. Schedule your free demo right now and receive their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash product hunt. Set up your free demo and get your free guide today at netsuite.com slash product hunt. That's netsuite.com slash product hunt. I love that. That's so great. And exactly as you said, you've got to start somewhere, right? And where you find that that space where you can add value, that space that you're really passionate about, that that part of what makes you unique that other companies want to access or, you know, connect with or find more about. Um, that's absolutely where you should explore those opportunities and and see where they can lead you. I think that's really great advice. Thanks for sharing. Um, so I want to talk about Harlem Capital. <laughs> um, I know that, you know, when TechCrunch broke the news in December, the end of last year, 
the startup community was, you know, buzzing with this exciting news about a $40 million fund because, you know, we know how hard it is for founders from underrepresented backgrounds, whether you're a woman, whether you're a black woman, whether you're a person of color, to access funding. It's still, you know, single digit percentages, if not fractions of a percentage of venture capital funding in the US that's going to underrepresented founders. So this is so incredible to hear this. And it also showed that it's possible. You know, sometimes I think, you know, founders like myself, you know, I'm a woman of color here. I just think, is it really so hard? Are there really no people out there that want to invest in companies that are serving underserved markets, companies that are connecting with communities that established companies have ignored for so long? Long. And sometimes you get a bit <laughs> uh, a bit disheartened because you start to convince you know convince yourself that maybe that is the case. And then you know to hear about news like Harlem Capital was just so incredibly exciting. So I just want to know you know how you pulled it off and what you have planned. <laughs> yeah. So you asked an interesting question, which I'm I ask myself, and I'm sure a lot of folks do. Um, you said, "Hey, well, is it really that hard for like, or why is it that hard for 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 to go out and get some um, funding?" And you know, while we were on the fundraising trail, it really took for me anyway, who was an outsider to this world, it took a long time to really understand the dynamics at play. You realize venture capital is a relatively new asset class. Really was like formed in the seventies. So when you think of that compared to banking and you know private equity and so forth, it's a new kid on the block. It formed out of almost like counterculture to you know New York finance style of running a business and style of thinking and style of growing. You know, being an entrepreneur. So it grew like out of spirit spirit of rebellion. It was less like hierarchical and it was more you know an idea meritocracy. And so anyway, so here it was, and it was concentrated in a handful of zip codes. And so, you know, the first fund that, you know, the first few funds that were started, several partners broke away and then they started the next fund. And then the same thing happened over and over until you have effectively an asset class that the majority of dollars have circulated in, but, but a handful of zip codes and who have attended, but from a handful of schools. And that wouldn't matter if venture capital is wasn't determining the, the next companies that go public and the next companies of the future, right? And, and so it didn't get a lot of attention until you, when you look at, you know, the S&P or the NASDAQ, like the most valuable companies in the world all raise venture or a lot of them raise venture, you know, they're, they're growing so fast and they start young. So anyway, that to me was very, very fascinating to observe and understand, not just on paper, but through hundreds of conversations that we had when you're on the trail, you realize like, man, this is a deeply rooted, there's a, there's deep rooted tradition in venture and that doesn't change overnight. And then on top of that, when you add the complexity of raising capital from institutions, the bar is even higher because you can't have a well-meaning person of color, woman, or white guy for that matter, whom has a beautiful vision and you know is championing for the people and has people behind them and has a media behind them, but ultimately might not have the financial chops and technical acumen and 
that institutions need in order to feel comfortable to write you a big ass check. <laughs> so now, so then when you peel that layer back, you say, okay, cool. Well, you know, there are minorities in that track and women that in that track of like, you know, Ivy League classically trained, you know, financial wizards, so to speak. But then you have to layer on top of that, that that kid or gal or guy now has to have the balls to go out and raise a fund. And a lot of them, after you accrue all that student debt from going to Yale or Harvard or wherever, you'd much rather just go be a, a consultant or a, a banker and make 400 grand you know, a year to start and do that for 10 years and get rich that way because it's, it's much more certain. And so to scale it all the way back, like, you know, it's, it's difficult because you have to have the right group of people that are impassioned, that meet the moment, that have the skill set, all of the various things that are needed to go and the, the contacts, and then be willing to pound the pavement and take the risk that you might not succeed and go out there and slowly convince, you know, convincing individuals is a little bit easier when you're raising a fund. You know, you might get individuals that write small checks and eventually you build a coalition of support. But the real moment for funds when you're on the trail is, you know, can you win over institutional support? And when you do, that takes you to a different tier of funds because not a lot of oh, interesting. and particularly not at all, not a lot of first time managers never mention never mind you know under 30 and black and then investing in black people you know like not a lot of folks cross over into that institutional like you've been institutionally approved now when you do then you know individuals know individuals so institutions like endowments and you know you know state funds and you know hospitals and big you know bigger um funds they pull the trigger quite slowly. The, the courting process is not like when a startup pitches a VC, you have two weeks to decide. You know, these folks take their time, they vet because they're, you know, they're investing with a high level of scrutiny. So when they pull the trigger, they got to feel like, okay, we're making the right bet. And so anyway, to bring it all the way around, if that didn't, you know, I hope that sounded really hard because it is really hard. And when you finally do have a team or an individual or, or whatever that can bridge all of those various daunting, you know, challenges, you start getting some institutional capital flow in that direction. And by the way, that wasn't necessarily wasn't credit to us. There were there were funds before Harlem Capital that garnered some institutional dollars with respect to diversity focus. But the truth is it all starts helping because then the, the windfall of institutional capital flows in that direction. And you'll see it's very different when, let's say, a woman exits a company, she makes $700 million and she puts, you know, five or $10 million to work at a fund. Like that's significant, but it's more course changing when institutions that professionally manage, you know, tens of millions, if not billions of dollars start flowing capital in this direction, then other funds like Harlem Capital and others start securing capital. And then that decreases the risk and the pressure that these diversity focused funds have to choose winners. Because when an asset class is new or a subsegment of an asset class is new, like diversity focused investing is, 
you know, you kind of have, you can invest in every, you cannot invest in every minority because it's still, you know, it's still investing. Like you got to pick your, your bets and then you're tempted to go with the safer bets because you want to make sure you return capital because you feel the pressure that you're, you know, representing all diversity focused investors. So anyway, I, I shared that 30,000 foot view because it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of stakeholders at play. There's a lot of interests that need to be aligned in order for this to be done effectively. That's why it's so hard. And that's why it takes time. And yes, um, Harlem Capital's win uh, is a big one. And we know that it, it will just continue to encourage more. Yeah. And based on that, you know, high level view of how all the stakeholders are motivated to make decisions in this space. It feels like the more funds like Harlem Capital that exist and invest in successful startups that go on to scale, you know, increase their market share, go public, get acquired, et cetera, the more funds like this we will have, the more you validate that thesis. And that means that 10, 20, 30 years, it will be even easier for underrepresented founders to access capital. Yep. Yep. That's right. That's certainly the hope, you know, we'll see, but we're, we're pretty confident that, you know, the allocation of venture capital will continue to reflect the reality of the American population. And the American population is not 97% white and 3% of color as, you know, currently venture allocated dollars would lead you to believe. So yeah, we're, we're optimistic, we're hopeful. Um, and me in particular, you know, I'm optimistic, not only for venture as it's growing and in influence, but, you know, we'll see what happens with venture because, you know, I, I do think that there's a, a correction in the market bound to happen and it won't stop venture, but it will certainly have big impact on more like legacy companies with older jobs. And so everything's connected. So I'm curious what happens to the workforce, what happens to all this like lavish media spending that we have you know, what happens to real estate. But one thing I know for sure is that because of tech and social, more minorities, women, and, and just like unorthodox entrants are privy to um, how to get something started. And if you got the right hustle, and if you, you know, uh, are persistent in asking the questions, um, as I've, you know, kind of proved to myself over the last decade, like you can build a little something and give yourself a little bit of an advantage. Like you might not have been bored with any advantages, but you can start to build your own. And, you know, I always like to zoom out because it's not just venture, you know, because there are some people listening that maybe don't necessarily want to go and start an Amazon. They just want to have like an additional flow of income. They might want to dabble in real estate. They might want to just make more cash to travel more or whatever. And I just feel like it's a good time for, for us in general, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about the the current state of affairs um, in our economy and as a as a population. And then obviously it's election year, so we'll see mm. <laughs> the landscape um, as well. So man, just a lot of big questions in the air, and and more than anything, I just. I'm just stoked to be like a positive member of society that's contributing. I love that. And sometimes that's the best that we can do. Just focus on the spheres where we have influence and, you know, live our values through those and, and, be, and be positive in a world that has a lot of negative energy in it. So yeah, I appreciate that. I think that's really great. One thing I wanted to ask before we get close to wrapping up is what you do to invest in your 
personal development? Because I know you're someone whose professional life is very full. You're working on a number of projects. You're definitely maximizing your utilization and capacity, which is really impressive. But of course, you wouldn't be able to do any of these things if you yourself weren't always growing. You know, you've sold your first company like a decade ago, but you continue to excel and um, challenge yourself further. And I just wondered what you practice in your life to be able to continue growing and learning. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I do think that the person you are needs to grow if you were to grow. I wish I had some like, you know, really nice and neat systematic way of doing this. Um, a lot of my colleagues do like a lot of peers of mine are, are very methodical and organized and then they write down new skills that they want to learn and like stuff like that. For me, it's a little bit different. Like I realized ever since I left school and started my first business that I just kind of learned best by just trying new stuff. That's been my thing over the last decade, just experiencing as many different things as, as makes sense for me. And by the way, then, you know, then that prompts the question, well, how do you know how much is too much? And the answer is you, know, you just kind of keep going until you screw up, uh, you know, a lot. And then when you, when you're screwing up a lot, you're real, at least this is how I learned, right? Like I can tell when my plate is too full, when I'm dropping the ball on too many fronts, you know, but like, there's no paper formula that would tell me what is my limit until I hit it. And then I can scale back. And then when I've scaled back too far, I can tell because I have too much time on my hands. And so I've just kind of ebbed and flowed, you know, I've hosted a television show as an example, like that wasn't on paper, the most prudent thing I could have done because I, I was in the middle of a lot of other things and it took my time away for three months. But like, cool, I've, I've done that, you know, like I've built a life experience. I now can say I've, I've done this and it builds my skill set elsewhere. And so for me, I really can say I live based on kind of what captures my imagination. Um, and when I find something like interesting and exciting, like, and I can't stop thinking about it, that for me, that's usually a cue of like, man, I want to go and do that. And that to me is all the personal development at the moment that I could want because it keeps you learning all kinds of new things. You get beat up, you know, you make bad mistakes. You're usually not the sharpest one in the room, but I'm a firm believer and I'm willing to take this bet. We'll see how it plays out in the next 10 years. But I really do think that, you know, as a result, if you live that way, like you're going to learn so much across the board and develop like a really smart way of thinking and, and um, combining worlds. Um, at least that's the bet for me. So we'll see. Maybe I listen to this 10 years from now. It's like, man, I should have uh, focused on one thing. But <laughs> well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's working. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of fun with this. So we'll see where it goes. Amazing. Cool. So just before I let you go, being the Product Hunt podcast, can't let you go without asking you about products that you love. So maybe these are apps that are on your home screen. Maybe it's some new gadget you just got for your home, a gift you received, even just a cool site you have discovered. This is where you get the chance to share it with our community. Yeah. Um, well, lately I have really been on um, my soda stream kick. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice. Yeah. It's a little device that just carbonates water. And it's so funny, but it's such a simple device that for me has made like a notable improvement in my, in my water intake because I could just quickly carbonate water and add lime. And then like, I'm just drinking water a lot more regularly. So there's that. Um, there's my Nespresso. Pretty dope. Decent coffee on the go. 
What else? Oh, I also have this like little LED ring light that I bought for Black Friday for like 150 bucks. That um, it's just USB powered, and you press the button, and it illuminates you in like the perfect way. So like if you need to like take a quick video call from home or whatever, you just press that, and you know it makes you look like you're in like just a beautiful office, pretty much anywhere you. Oh wow! I'm googling this right now so I can <laughs> get one. From my next video call. Yeah, so those three things right now are pretty dope. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. John, thank you so much for making time today. So for folks who are listening and want to find out more about you, your projects, Harlem Capital, where should they go? Um, hit me up on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash John Henry Style. I'm on there uh, more these days and Instagram less these days. Um, so hit me up. Let's get a little dialogue on. And um, I hope you guys have enjoyed this. I'm also, just as a final note, I'm happy to dive into specifics of wealth building and investing and entrepreneurship at any time. I try to keep things somewhat high level on on a show like this because I just want folks to get more understanding of the framework of it all and that isn't that scary. And then, you know, if this happens to interest you and you like 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 to learn more, sure, hit me up anytime. You can hit me right up on Twitter or email and I'll always get right back. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into Product Hunt Radio. I've got a favor to ask you. Will you take a minute to review us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to us right now? Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.